Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to the Communal Table Podcast, part of Food & Wine Pro. I'm your host, Kat Kinsman, and I'm really excited about my guest today, a chef who I admire personally, professionally, like all of of the different levels, uh, chef and now partner, Bill Posto, Melissa Rodriguez. Hi. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm really, really glad that you are here. I've had your food before and it's just one of those it's one of those dining rooms and it's the the pres is the service and it's the food on the plate where you are just plucked out of the rest of the world and in this incredible luxurious space where all that exists is your your dining companions the things on the plate and it's it's just such a beautiful experience thank you it's such a nice compliment well and you were also really great about I'm I'm sure people who listen to this podcast Podcasts are sick of me talking about my dietary issues, but I have them. And you were incredibly kind about um, replacing, making substitutions for the things that uh, you know give me some trouble. I, uh, frankly, with your food, I would have eaten it no matter <laughs> what. I might have felt bad later, but this no, no suffering, <laughs> yeah, no suffering. In fact, uh, like just pleasure and delight. Awesome. <laughs> and you've been okay. Talk about your. Uh, you've been there for. How long? Eight eight years. And you've been partner for? Uh, just a few months. Okay. And so what is your actual title there now? Um, executive chef. Executive chef. Yeah. And partner. And partner. <laughs> and, uh, okay, we're just going to get the cruddy thing out of the way up front. I ate there a week before um, the former uh, chef owner of it, Mario Batali, was uh, in the media for sexual harassment and, and various things. So I did not return during that, that period. And I've, and I've always sort of wondered what the right thing is to do, because I know that these restaurant empires where men have done bad things, um, it's not just that person. There are, you have a massive, massive staff. And I, I felt really conflicted because I wanted to support you. Um, but I couldn't conscience going in there while he was still financially benefiting. Now that he's not, <laughs> make a reservation right now. And I actually made a whole ritual of going back to Italy oh, wow. <laughs> after that. Because like the thing is, like these were some of my favorite restaurants. Uh, go to Vegas. I spent my birthday at B&B a couple of, of times in yeah. Vegas. And I want to talk through, you know, I, I'm always... These conversations are, we're talking beforehand a little bit. I have these, I've had these conversations mostly with women who have been in these empires where, again, the men have done bad and things and, uh, and, and harmful things. And I'm never quite sure about like asking, talking to them about that when they don't get the chance to have the microphone very often. And when you are people who've been doing the right thing the whole time and really working hard and uh, you suffer collateral damage from this, but at the same time, we can't not talk about it. So I want to talk about how you felt going, going through this process, what this has been like for, for you. Um, it was very difficult. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, um, to be very honest, um, as far as a like daily operations at Del Posto. We've always functioned very independently. And before I took over on the daily operations, it was Mark Ladner. Um, and that's kind of all I knew for Del Posto. Um, you know, the upper management and owner management in that sense is not necessarily part of that. And so that behavior and culture was not uh, what was happening at Del Posto and mm -hmm. was not how Mark managed and certainly not how I managed. So it was, <laughs> I suspected somehow. It was very hard to right. just be like kind of categorize or put, put under an umbrella of like, this is, this must be how you are and how your staff is when it was most certainly not the case. Um, so that was, that was difficult, you know, um, Del Posto was always like a place I really enjoy going. I have an awesome staff and, I've spent a lot of time and energy working on building a team and Jeff Katz and I have, Jeff Katz is um, a managing partner at Del Posto who I've worked with for a long time now, have always worked on really focusing on making Del Posto be somewhere everyone wants to come, come back to mm -hmm. every day. Um, so like our kitchen culture and restaurant culture has always been incredibly important. So being put under a bad, you know, an um, umbrella of, uh, of bad behavior was, was hard. Um, 
to be very honest, I got very protective of my staff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have like 50 somewhat cooks in the kitchen. Yeah, it's a giant, it's a if you giant operation. Oh my God, the care <laughs> and the detail that goes into that food is, I can't imagine how many hands that must take. It's, it's, it's a big operation. You know, yeah. we, all day we have like 200 plus employees. Um, and a lot of them have been there for a very long time. Um, so it was very hard not to just feel like being very protective and careful, um, with my staff. Um, what did that look like? Um, we started talking a lot every day about what was happening in the media. Mm -hmm. I thought that it was important for us to just put it all out there. I mean, I had a lot of people coming to me and saying they were, upset or concerned with what was being said about us because they felt like it, it didn't, the story didn't go hand in hand with the behavior of what was happening. Um, a lot of people and including myself got very kind of very sensitive, um, you know, just talking about how we behave around each other and how we make you know, a professional and productive workplace and what it takes for us to all participate in that, that just started becoming, that was always part of the conversation. We were just much more vocal about it. You know, I have a kitchen meeting every day and we talk about anything. We talk about what's going on in the restaurant. We talk about who's coming in, um, any new dishes that we're working on. We talk about uh, personal hygiene. We talk about mental health care. We talk about who got reviewed. You know, we we talk about everything. It's kind of like an open forum for anyone who wants to say something. Um, and, you know, we kind of use that as, at least I use that for my cooks as like a place to talk about how important our behavior professionally is. Um, Were those conversations happening sort of before that or did, did they get just ramped up? No, that was always how we were behaving. So it was, it just, they just got ramped up when all this (laughs) happened. Like it just became a lot more, you know, it it became a lot clearer that we had to make sure that everyone understood any kind of like kind of network that they needed to go through if they needed help or something was happening in the restaurant that we were unaware of. There was anonymous people to talk to um, that maybe weren't me. Um, you know, being very clear about what the kind of human resources structure was and and how, what behavior and how behavior is acceptable in the workplace. You know, just really going over that more vocally became part of every day. Yeah, can we talk about the anxiety that people must have been feeling because some definitely some uh, restaurants in the uh, empire closed down i saw was it la serena uh yeah. closed the restaurants in vegas closed yeah. i don't know if all the restaurants in vegas closed or not but i know like b&b and um carnivino yes. did i don't know if uh oto and and like the burger and beer stayed open they all did. yeah um that's and if you're seeing that this is is happening um did you feel like people were wondering, oh, are we next? Um, I No, I didn't really have that feeling from most of my cooks. I, a lot of their concerns were just about kind of being under that umbrella of bad mm-hmm. behavior that they felt like was unfair to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a few concerns about when... Um, when Mario would no longer be profiting from the restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Um, that was definitely um, a concern. And and then, honestly, I had a lot of people get very, you know, sensitive. Um, you know, I had a lot of people who had been with me for a little while all of a sudden be like, you know what, I don't like the way this person talks to me. Or I don't like the way this person says hello to me, which is fine, but it became a lot more prominent all of a sudden. Yeah. And so just you know, having those conversations, finding solutions, um, talking through what the actual issues were and finding forward moving steps or, you know, any kind of disciplinary actions that needed to happen. And, you know, that, that kind of exploded, didn't explode, but definitely greatened during this time. How are you managing your own emotions uh, during this time? Because not only are you dealing with somebody who, you know, had been 
probably mentor to you and the the probably anger and I'm like sorry if I'm putting words in mouth, <laughs> like any anger and disappointment but then having to to manage other people's uh, things, uh, to manage other people's feelings and safety and everything through this. That's that's a lot while you're going through your own things. And usually, you know, things are staggered. It's not super often that everybody collectively is <laughs> is is going through something because you know, unless there's like some sort of like national trauma or, or you know something yeah. like that happens. You know, somebody's up, somebody's down, and if everybody's going through the same thing at once, that's that's a, that's a lot on your shoulders. Yeah, it was heavy. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I I guess I I kind of for myself just focused on making sure that I was taking care of myself so that um, handling these situations were clear, clear and thoughtful, and um, my decision making was kind of on point. Like I started, I've always been very active. Mm-hmm. Um, I work out a lot, which is for me. What, in, what's your thing? In, oh, it changes <laughs> a lot. Right now it's just, um, I do, like I train with a trainer once a week and then I do like weight training on my own a few days a week. Mm-hmm. In the past I've done like CrossFit. I've had a really dedicated Bikram uh, regimen, a very dedicated long like distance running regimen. Oh, wow. <laughs> I kind of, I, I change because I get a little bored and yeah. I just... That's very chefy. Try to like make um, time for that, but I realized that, you know, at that time it became even more important because just for me to have my own mental clarity, mm-hmm. like that was half of it. You know, for me, like like exercising and taking care of myself is half of my job for being like showing up for my cooks and the rest of my staff. I feel like a lot of chefs are learning that the hard way these days where all of a sudden they realize like, oh my God, my knees don't work or nobody ever taught, nobody ever modeled good behavior uh, for them in, in, in terms of taking care of them themselves. How did you learn to take care of yourself? I know that sounds like a silly question, but like, uh, you know, I'm not a person who necessarily grew up being taught like, Hey, here's how you do, you know, take care of yourself in these various ways. Who taught you to do that? Uh, I don't really know. Actually, <laughs> Like, I think I only learned how to eat breakfast like a few years ago and mm-hmm. I'm still really bad at that. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I, I always played team sports as a kid and, um, I've always been active because it's always made me feel good. Um, my husband is also very active, so that's probably we're active together. That's is he in the industry? It. He is. He's a chef also. Okay, let's talk about that for a second, <laughs> if you don't mind too, because like I, 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 and it actually doesn't surprise me that he's in the industry because uh, people in restaurants uh, with civilians, it's the time it's tough. Yeah. So in the managing the time of that, I see friends of mine who, you know, most of the people I know in, in restaurants where I know sort of the couple, they're, they're, they're both in it. So you have that solidarity of understanding that the hours are the hours, the requirements, yeah. are the requirements. Uh, how did this, this come together and how do you support each other during this? Um, and generally, I think just in general, we've always just been understanding of each other's directions and, um, you know, he's very supportive of, of me and, and, and moving my career and being very kind of active with that. Um, you know, he understands the hours. Mm -hmm. He's also like the person to be like, Hey, you know, you just worked like 18 hours maybe like you should give a give yourself a break like there was a point where I was working this was many years ago at this point but I was working six days a week and like 100 hours and on we were both off on Sunday and that was my only day off and there would be some Sundays that he would we would wake up and he'd be like I'm gonna leave for a little while like do whatever it is that you need to do to decompress to like be a person but I'm just going to step out for a few hours so that like you have some time for you. That's a gift. Whether you just hang out in the apartment in your pajamas or you read a book or go for a walk or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like kind of just wanted me. He kind of taught me, I guess, a lot of, of taking care of yourself in that way. Cause I didn't realize that like 
I was kind of a monster and I needed to like, it was like that Snickers commercial when like, oh God, you're really hungry and you know. (laughs) And here's who, like, here's who you become. And that's, you know what, so we were talking before this a little bit about the uh, people around you who bully you into taking care of yourself or or not even bully, but like. I always think there's like a benign bullying that you can do for for people to convince them to be better to themselves. Um, I have a fantastic colleague, Margaret Ebai, who has a habit of uh, if I try to check in while I'm supposed to be on vacation, she just responds with a picture or video of Drake. (laughs) <laughs> and so we have learned to drake one another <laughs> That's awesome. and uh you know we're trying i was trying to figure out like what it is but like i had to be taught boundaries because i suck at you yeah. know Same. so yeah but so you were saying that people in your kitchen actually help you uh do that yeah for sure um Can you talk about what that looks like <laughs> you know i i have a schedule all my cooks have a schedule i make everyone's schedule um i make sure that they all have the same schedule regularly. You know, the restaurant is never closed, so they can be challenging wait, oh, sometimes. Wait, so there's not a day off. There's no. not a, or you don't oh, there's not like a universal realize. day off for the restaurant. Which I didn't realize that was challenging. Well. Yeah. Um so I make sure that they all have two days off in a row mm-hmm. every week. I try to make their schedules as regular as possible and I try to do the same for myself. Mm -hmm. Um, It's often (laughs) that if I'm in the restaurant on a day when I'm not supposed to be there that I do have cooks that will be like, why are you here? (laughs) And, you know, I do that to them. If they show up and they're not supposed to be there, why are you here? You know, and they do that to me as well. So it's kind of, it's kind of funny. I like that. I mean, it's, I've been having... More conversations with chefs, and I'd love your insight on this, who were saying, like, yes, obviously restaurant culture has to change. It has to be more humane. It has to allow for people to have an outside life. It has to take into account um, people's identity, humanity, like all of of the things. Um, But, and it's especially sort of more old school chefs saying that then they're having a really hard time uh, getting kind of the quality work and saying, well, I used to be able to yell at them and then they gave me what I wanted to, but I can't yell at people anymore. <laughs> so what's the middle ground on this? Um, Cause you, I mean, I will say for people who again, need context for this, she operates one of the highest end kitchens in uh, New York, if not the country, if not the world. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, I'm someone who really deals really well with being yelled at. Like I am really good at the like stand at attention yes chef Mm -hmm. like yell at me and I will move and make shit happen um but I also understand that not everyone is good (laughs) at that and um I've always you know when you're in that position of being the person who's getting yelled at you look around you and you realize that it's not for everyone and and um at some point you start navigating how you want to behave. Um, I think a lot of times watching other people behave in ways that you know make other people uncomfortable or unproductive, Mm -hmm. um, it kind of helps you navigate how you want to manage and what kind of manager you want to be. Oh, my God. I think I probably learned the most about what I don't want to do from, like, my worst bosses and who who were bullies. Yeah. I mean, I've always been very, like, blessed to have bosses that were always well intended. Mm-hmm. I didn't never I can't really say that I have had anyone who was a bully. I definitely had people who just knew exactly what they want, yeah. when they wanted it, how they wanted it, what time they wanted it, and they would tell you every single time until it was done. You know, but I learned a lot from you know, watching, you know, like I said, like they were well intended Mm -hmm. and sometimes it was in a yell and sometimes it wasn't, but I always felt like, I always felt so embarrassed yelling. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like when I was a younger manager, like yelling was, was easy, Mm -hmm. but yelling was kind of like what you did because you didn't know what else to do yet. Yes. Cause you, you, it's, it, to me, it shows a lack of control. Like if you have to, if you have to yell for the thing you want, then there's something, there's a disconnect. They're absolutely like, I'm I'm always so fascinated by like the quiet kitchens and like the sort of quiet, harmonious kitchens where it is, I love settling into the rhythm of like watching that, like, 
yes, chef, you know, you know, I think that's such a, I don't know. I find weird peace in watching that happen. I've just always found it much easier to navigate who you're managing and how you're going to manage them. And, and that changes with every person. And, and honestly, you get a lot more for me, at least I get a lot more out of a larger percentage of people. If I just talk to them. Yeah. I mean, we're humans and maybe some people want to check that at the door when they get into the kitchen. And I've definitely talked with people who say like, yeah, that particular kitchen order as, uh, you know, it works for my particular brain and especially like a, you know, I've, I've talked with people who deal with like obsessive compulsive disorder and they mm-hmm. were saying kitchen is the perfect place for them to be because you know what the order is. You never have to wonder what's going to happen because this is just the thing that's supposed to happen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my kitchen is, it's pretty chill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm demanding, but mm-hmm. it's it's relatively, you know, my cooks are social with each other. I'm not like, please don't talk. But <laughs> I just, you know, I appreciate you using like your library voice when you're speaking with someone rather than yelling across the kitchen. But there's no one running around like a tyrant and screaming. <laughs> it, it just... It's not like who I am. It's not how Mm -hmm. I want the kitchen to feel. Like I want everyone there to feel like it's a place they want to be and that they're comfortable and they're learning. And I don't find that (laughs) yelling or allowing any of my kitchen management to yell is what happens. It just doesn't, it doesn't work for me. So you were talking about the, and we'll get off yelling in a second, but it's such a fascinating uh, thing because how do you, you were saying the people who don't respond well to it, how do you compartmentalize that thing versus like that dice is wrong uh, and, and just think, oh yes it is versus, oh my God, I suck. I should, you know, get out of the profession. Like, I, cause I know for a lot of people, there isn't a distinction between those, those two. Uh, what is it about your, your, your brain that allows you to separate that out and maybe not take it so personally? Um, I don't, I think for me at least, like I was not a good cook right away. It took me a lot of time. Um, I, I like to like compare it to like I played the piano as a kid and Mm -hmm. I was not good at it. It took me a long time to get good at it. So I think I've always been very comfortable with kind of etching away at getting good at something. So I kind of, I always like made small goals for myself Mm -hmm. in every restaurant that I've worked in. And I, I talk about this often and I've always made small goals that are realistic. So you can make small goals on a daily basis in a restaurant because you get to start over the next day. Yeah. So if I, for example, like my brunoise of celery was not perfect and I got yelled at all night by the chef about it, the next day, that was my small goal, you know. Um, Or I overcooked a piece of fish and I got yelled at for it. The next day, I was going to do everything in my power to, like, not allow myself or to be um, diligent enough to be conscious that I knew that this was something I needed to work on. So I've never really, I've never really tried to beat myself up about those types of things. I've always just tried to look forward and figure out how to move forward from those things instead of being like, I'm going to let this drive me crazy. <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm going to try my best at doing better as I go along and hoping that that kind of at some point becomes something much bigger than just my brunoise. (laughs) It takes practice. Cooking is practice. It's hard. It's, it's, it's hard. And you have to, it's a copy machine. You have to do it the same way every time. Yep. That's, uh, that's a lot of, I I think that's probably great for a lot of brains and other ones, maybe less so. Well, let's talk about how you came up because you you moved here. You you started cooking in New York City in, you said 98, was it? Yeah, 98. Okay, how old were you at this point? Uh, I was 18. (laughs) So you're a little punk. (laughs) Yeah, it was like, it was on my internship and... Internship from, so... I went to the Culinary Institute of America right out of high school. Okay. Um... I had started cooking in high school and Where were like you loosely, I just, I essentially, I started cooking at home and, um, I had a friend who was 
suggested that I get a job in a restaurant. She was like, you cook all the time at home, like for your family. My, I was, you know, an, a latchkey kid and my mom worked every day and I didn't love my mom's cooking. And so <laughs> yeah. I started to cook. And um, same. Yeah. That's how it happened for me too. <laughs> and not everyone loved my cooking for a long time either. Um, but that's what I did. And so... Were, were you looking at um, at cookbooks, food TVs? What I you was saw? looking at cookbooks. Food TV kind of was just starting. Yeah. So it wasn't really part of anything I knew. I used to watch Great Chefs on PBS oh, after yeah. school. Oh, God, that but was like, such a great show. But that was like it. It was kind of the beginning yeah. of the Food Network. So I wasn't like hip to what that was. And yeah. So I read a lot of cookbooks. What, what were the books that you um, that you found? <laughs> so my mom worked in travel for a really long time, and she worked for Pan Am, and she had all these like Pan Am cookbooks that I used to read. Oh my god, that's amazing! Yeah, they were really funny. Wait, are those the ones that are like? Were they like the Time Life ones, the yeah. sort of cuisines of the world? Yes, yeah. I love those. <laughs> oh my god! So you would, uh, so you're you're there, you're reading these things, and you're cooking through. Like, did you cook? F- for yourself and your mom, did you cook for other people? My sisters. Um, okay. <laughs> I have a younger sister and uh, I have an older sister, but at, my older sister is about four years older than me. So at some point she went away to college and it was just me and my little sister. And, you know, I was happy to eat microwave popcorn <laughs> and my little sister was very happy to eat, you know, tortilla chips and salsa. And that <laughs> I still am. Was not, yeah, exactly. And that was not exactly, you know, happiness for my mom um, right who was working full-time and um so yeah so I I uh I had a friend and and she made me call every restaurant in the yellow pages <laughs> just to say you know I don't have a skill set I just want to learn and see what working in a restaurant kitchen is like and I, ha- I must have called 50 places and one place said yes. What was that place? um, It was called the Elbow Room and it was in Norwood, New Jersey. And I think I spent like two to three hours a day there, two to three three days a week because I had an after school job and I played soccer. So I did that kind of later in the evening. And, um, you know, I was kind of a fly on the wall. I was honestly pretty useless. I peeled onions, I peeled carrots. (laughs) I just did whatever it was that they told me to do. But what I found was I really loved the energy of a kitchen and I really loved all the different people that were there. Um, and it was interesting. So at that point I was like, okay, I think maybe I'll try doing this. Um, and kitchens at that time were not known for their sensitivity to gender issues. So (laughs) no, I was the only girl for a while and (laughs) Yeah. And yeah. That was treated just... accordingly or were you treated um, just along with everybody else? I always felt that I was treated just along with everyone mm-hmm. else, but I was also someone who didn't have a problem speaking up mm-hmm. if I felt that that was in a direction that was not okay with me. That's, I mean, I have to say I'm so impressed with, uh, you know, a high school kid who is going to work in a restaurant kitchen. That's it is pretty kind incredible. Of realize that like you had, you have to build personal boundaries and mm-hmm. and even, I'm kind of shy and can be a little quiet. But if I'm in a situation that's uncomfortable, like I'm not going to just hang out there because I'm uncomfortable. I'm going to speak up or I'm going to move on. Yeah, and the, th- the thing that I've sort of come to learn too is if you're good at your job in the kitchen, like people are going to have respect for that. Yeah. Or at least hopefully. I mean, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I was kind of just like a, a Comey mercenary. I just did things. <laughs> I had no idea what was going on. So oh, I know. How many crates of onions? How much so time did you pick? <laughs> so much. <laughs> Would it be amazing to see like every, like all the prep work you've accrued throughout your entire life? Like how many rooms that would fill up? That's kind of horrifying. <laughs> oh my God. Like an entire vast field of time. <laughs> so, so you graduate, come to New York City and what's it look like from there? Or you went to the CIA. Actually. I went to, yeah, I went to CIA. I did my internship at this restaurant called The Cub Room. And then I, from my internship, was like, oh, I didn't really want to, like, not stop working. I really liked working. I liked being in the city. Um, so I worked every weekend. And then when I graduated from school, I went back to the same restaurant and stayed for about a year. And 
then I had realized I had never left this area ever mm-hmm. other than for, you know, family vacation or whatever. So I moved to Sonoma, California. Oh, that's quite a change. Yeah, it was a little bit of a culture shock, um, which I knew I was doing to myself. And I think that's why I did it. Um, and I decided that I didn't want to be in a restaurant situation because I liked the idea of my surroundings changing every day. So I did catering and it was in Napa and Sonoma Valley, which was beautiful. And you would go to all these beautiful gardens and wineries Super and wealthy. state parks or private homes and build a kitchen. You know, we weren't doing typical catering, hot box cooking. We had many stoves and, you know, set up a kitchen in the middle of a field or wherever. And so it was fun and it was interesting. And it kind of helped me build my skill set to a point that I could feel some confidence. And at some point I had enough confidence and I'm like, okay, it's time for me to go back to New York and I'm ready to go back into restaurants and I want to do something that's going to be challenging. Well, that also preps you for a particular kind of clientele Um, if if you're dealing with rich people, (laughs) frankly. (laughs) You know, that it can be a different thing psychologically, I feel like, what you're, you're sort of setting yourself up for. And when you came back to New York, is that when you started at Danielle? No, I, I was at Oceana first. Oh, okay. So talk to me about that. Um, I started at Oceana, um, and they had the chef was Cornelius Gallagher, and they had just gotten three stars from the New York Times, and it was a pretty progressive, kind of French fish focused American mm-hmm. restaurant. I feel like is Bill Telepan there now? He is. Yes. Yeah. It was a different space though. It okay. was in the townhouse on 54th Street, which Mm -hmm. has since moved to a much, much larger space. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was my first bout at fine dining. Um, You know, Neil was very demanding, and Neil Gallagher, he was the chef there, and and I learned a ton from him. Um, And I got really good at working in that kitchen. What was your position there? Um, I started, I worked all of them. <laughs> I worked all of them and, and um, uh, he offered me a sous chef position, but I really wanted to do four-star dining. So I opted to leave instead and I went to Danielle at that point. And that is a super high-end uh, kitchen, and yeah. I've, you know, had the pleasure of standing back and observing that one on on uh, various occasions, uh, assisted by our, our mutual friend, Mr. John Winterman, yes. <laughs> who his great party trick is being like, come into the kitchen. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, the rhythm of that particular thing is incredible. And the diners who go there are exacting. Yes. As I recall, because you're spending a crap ton of money yes. when you are are going there. Does, is that a thing that you think about while you were in the kitchen? You're just thinking, like, I'm doing my job because I'm doing my job, and I would do this job even if I were working at a Chuck E. Cheese? Or is it is that a conscious thing for you? I, I think when I was a line cook, I didn't think anything of it so much. <laughs> yeah. Because I didn't I didn't have any money, and I didn't I didn't dine like that, and um, I guess I, yeah, it was something I just kind of didn't consider and just was like, I just want to do whatever it is that's being told of me better than the guy or the girl standing next to me. That was kind of always my focus, well, especially while I was there. Um, You know, I went there to, like I said, I made small goals for myself and there were certain things I wanted to achieve in that restaurant and they happened quite quickly and... Um, and then I was made a sous chef like pretty, a little over a year after being there, which was not somewhere I had planned or expected to find myself. What is the thing during this time, maybe even from the beginning or maybe from, from there, did it occur to you that you wanted to lead your own kitchen or were you happy being part of one? I was always happy being part of one. Um, I think when I was at Oceana, I realized that I wanted to lead my own kitchen at some point. Um, 
you know, I, I think that's when I started really developing how I wanted to behave in a kitchen and how I wanted to speak to and, and uh, manage people. Um, you know, I kind of started focusing on getting good at having conversations with people. and Yeah, because that's not something you're taught no, like in it's not. <laughs> and, and, and it's something that you have to want to learn how to do. Yeah. I mean, and when Danielle, to be honest, that became a little easier because there was definitely, there was definitely like when you, when you start there and if you're an American kid who's never worked in France or has never been around that culture, you have a hard time understanding what anyone's saying. It takes a little bit of time to train your ear to understand the accent. Wait, chef. <laughs> so it was very easy for me. And that was kind of like my connection with the cooks starting in the restaurant is, is leading them on how to understand what was happening. And, and that's where it was kind of like, oh, at some point, like I'm going to have to do this for myself. That, yeah. I mean, that, that communication thing is absolutely everything. Yeah. So but it's not something you get taught. I don't, it's <laughs> a weird thing. They should, you should be taught how to communicate, I think, at some point. But I feel like there's kind of pressure on some of the bigger cooking schools to start having more of those like human focused uh, conversations. That's probably a smart move. <laughs> they really should, or else people aren't going to want to work in restaurants. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, it, I know that I, I talk to a lot of people who are having trouble hiring enough cooks or hiring, you know, front of house people, um, because, and, and not always retaining people, but people really, maybe, maybe this has changed. People used to be in a kitchen for a very long time and this is just like, this is their life. This is what they do and stuff. And it feels like maybe there's more hopping. It maybe feels like people are finding other ways to be in food. So they're like, screw this kitchen life yeah. and doing other things. It's definitely changed a lot. I think, I think there's just a much broader spectrum of how to be in food than there was maybe 20 years ago. Um, I'm pretty, I feel very lucky because most of my cooks stay for quite a while, which I feel very grateful for. Um, all of my sous chefs have all been cooks at some point and have just worked their way up into a sous chef position. Um, so that's a nice feeling. Um, and it creates like a nice culture in the kitchen. Um, there's definitely a lot of looking forward and, and role model, um, happening within the kitchen management and just within the, the cooks. Can you explain for sort of the people who haven't worked in restaurants, the difference between a sous chef and a cook? Um, the difference between a sous chef and a cook is the, uh, the, the sous chef manages the cook. So like for me, my kitchen is really large. I have five stations, one of every station, there's a sous chef and each station has four to six cooks on it. Not at the same time, but so that sous chef is, um, is dealt with managing those people on the station. Um, they're the people that maintain um, the quality of the mise en place and, and the way things are executed um, and the plating. Um, so they, it's almost as if they get to manage like their own little restaurant. <laughs> so like I've managed the pasta restaurant within Del Posto. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. It's kind of fun. It, 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 it makes it fun and easy to break down. And I also feel like it's here's managing light, um, you know, which can develop into much larger management skills. And can you tell the people who sort of have an eye on you and they're watching how you do it and learning and, and all that, like, so imagine not everybody in a kitchen eventually wants to be the exec or, you know, or, or move up. Are there, do you find people who are very happy just being a line cook like throughout? Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, most of my line cooks right now or I shouldn't say that they're all really young, but they're all pretty young. I, I do have a, a mixed group of age um, and experience. Um, I think a lot of them are very happy just to be a line cook. I think a lot of them feel the way I felt. Yeah. That they felt a little uncomfortable and not really that confident with their skills. Um, you know, and, and it's 
it keeps them kind of comfortable with being a line cook until they start building some confidence. Mm-hmm. I like to talk about that with them because I think it's an important subject. Like you're not always going to not be good at this. That's, That's really good to hear said out loud. Like at some point you'll get better. When like, you're in the thick of the suck yeah. of it <laughs> and, you, and, and there doesn't seem a way out of like whatever it happens to be. Like it's really, that's good and generous of you to vocalize that for Well, I them. think it's important be, because there are just some days when you really just suck at everything. And, <laughs> I know this too. And it's really hard to believe <laughs> that like you're going to be okay. Yep. <laughs> um, How do you get yourself through those days? <laughs> I just remember that I, the day will end <laughs> and tomorrow I can start over. That's a great thing about restaurants. That's like one of my favorite things about restaurants <laughs> is that you can have a terrible day and really suck at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And then you can go home and you can think about them, figure out how you're going to make things better and then let go of it and forget that it ever happened and move on with the resolution that you made for yourself the next day. So people should be Bill Murray and Groundhog Day. Yeah. Like I, <laughs> you know, like if, if, if I get angry or upset with you because you really screwed something up, mm-hmm. That happens on a Thursday. I forget about it on Friday. It's just not, I don't need to hold on to that. You don't need to hold on to it. And I do not need to dangle that over your head. It doesn't get anyone anywhere. That's really good because I think there are people who probably. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Don't work for those people. (laughs) I just feel like if, if I'm not, if I'm not including myself in finding forward moving steps, Mm -hmm. even if it is with like getting really great at mincing shallots, Mm -hmm. it is what it is. Then what kind of example am I leading? Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, if if I'm just dangling, you know, you really screwed this up and I'm going to be mad at you forever over your head for a whole week. That doesn't do anything. No, that's not, it's not a solution. That's just like being a bully. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fear of moving forward, addressing somebody as yeah. a human being. And I, I really think that a lot of bad behavior is based in fear. For sure. And, um, Let's keep on this for a moment because I, you know, we're, we're sort of having a through line on a bunch of, of, of stuff that we're, we're doing at Food One where we're talking about failure. And, you know, and it's, and some people really seem to relish it. Some people fear it. But the, everybody keeps saying, like, you have to, if you're not failing, it means you're not trying stuff. Can you talk about, like, a particular example, like, whether it was a, a dish, whether it was, like, a, 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 some sort of thing, and then how you got through that? Um, I think I look at, failure in menu development a lot. Um, I kind of have, um, the menu development in the restaurant is a collaborative. Mm-hmm. It's not. So a, it's you, who, who it's is it? me and my sous chefs. We have a meeting every week or every other week when, whenever we really can get it together. Um, and we talk about what we want to change and how we want to change it. And we taste food and, I look at failure in small increments and not like I'm going to die because this is totally you not where I want it to be. <laughs> um, you know, so like dish development for me is kind of like small increments of little failures sometimes. <laughs> it's never perfect. You know, like the first iteration that you do of something is hardly ever perfect. But then you just work towards itch, etching away on what's missing, what mm-hmm. needs to happen, what needs to go away, what needs to be added, how do we make this better? Um, so I guess I, I look at failure in, in that way and try mm-hmm. to remove it a little bit. Yeah, so so something wouldn't, so it's never really... It's never a catastrophe. That's, yeah. That's you always the, have like a base, maybe it's not the greatest start, mm-hmm. but it's a start. So if you just look forward at like making it better and being open to discussing how to do that, mm-hmm. then you don't really have to feel like you're always failing. So, yeah, cause I definitely- because I think it's an unrealistic expectation to be like, this is like, this is perfect and amazing. That's mm-hmm. that hardly ever happens. Yeah. And not to conflate this sucks. So I suck. Yeah. And that's that's sort of a you know a hard thing to do. So the thing is, so when a dish it's finally on the menu and it's going out that that first day or week or whatever to the diners. Is that considered in part of the development? Like how of close? Of course, yeah. of course. Because even after, even though maybe this is the 20th iteration of this dish that you've made and now it's finally going on the menu, 
the reception of it and yeah. the reaction to it, you have to take with stride. You can't ignore that. Mm-hmm. You're not doing the restaurant or your clientele any favors by ignoring that. Yeah. And sometimes there are things that maybe you all of a sudden understand could be executed better or differently, or this could be just slightly altered this way and it's so much better. You know, so you're always looking, at least for me, like I'm always looking at how do we grow this into something better than than just this? Yeah. So how does that, that feedback come, by the way, from, from the diners? Because I know like it's really cruddy when it comes in the form of a Yelp review or yeah. something. <laughs> but do you feel like... This is a question that I, I've, I've been asking people recently. Like, what is the diner's role in making sure that they have a great experience? Um, that's a difficult question because everyone has an opinion. Yeah. And they're not always going to be in line with what you believe or what the restaurant believes. But at the same time, we are in the hospitality industry and trying to accommodate or appease um, at a rational level is is how we try to navigate. You know, especially Del Posto is kind of a celebratory restaurant. Oh, yeah. It's a special occasion. We we want people to feel like it's a special occasion and we want them to feel good about what's happening with their meal and their table and everything. So mm-hmm. we're pretty open. Uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of um, checking in. There's a lot of service points. There's a lot mm-hmm. of service that happens. There's so much service that happens. Like there, there are a lot of people out on the floor. It feels like you don't see them. They're kind of stealth. Yeah. And then all of a sudden this thing that you didn't know you wanted but desperately now need in your life is right there. Yeah. It has so arrived. It, you know, it puts you in this place that if the person sitting at the table maybe doesn't like their tomato salad and they don't tell you, but then they walk out the door and write a Yelp review. You're just like, oh, come on. Like we were in this together for like three hours. This was like a three and a half hour it meal. It is not a short meal. And it's an expensive meal. And there's no reason why you sh- shouldn't say that you were displeased with something. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's trying to intentionally displease anyone. <laughs> right. And finding solutions is part of what we do. Um, I think that like, I don't think, I don't, you know, shun on people who speak up about being displeased with their food or it wasn't what they expected. We just want to give you something that you want. So at least give us that opportunity because it's the worst when you go home and you read the Yelp review or whatever it was and you're just like, man. That was that was the easiest fix ever. Yeah, I mean, you've you've worked at high price point places. Do you feel like diners? Like there's more expectation from people. Like the the highs are high, the lows are lower. For sure, yeah. I mean, definitely. And at some point, you have to understand you're you're going to try your best to please as much as you can. But it's not. Some people just don't want to be pleased. Yeah, and you can't be like. You can't be responsible for that. It's just, <laughs> it's just what who it is. And yeah, I, I um, remember talking with the GM of uh, I think uh, it was Clickio and Sons, and him saying about like you just can't unscrew up somebody's night if they have come in wanting to be upset about something. Like you're just nothing you can do about that. You, you try your best, you know, <laughs> and sometimes you win, and you're like, okay, great. This person ended up being turning around, yeah, and being very happy. Um, you know, yeah, we try. (laughs) You do. And I want to back up for a second to that moment that you're, you're working at Danielle and then Mark Ladner's leaving Del Posto. How did that, that conversation happen? (laughs) You know, how, like, because all of a sudden, like you're, here's a position you've been, you know, at this incredibly well-regarded, uh, restaurant in a, in a high position and you could have been coming there for a long time, imagine, but this opportunity opens up. How do you, can you talk about the emotional process of, of that? How did this all happen? Um, you know, I, I had worked with Mark for a long time and I kind of ended up, at, ended up at Del Posto accident, had he been accidentally. No. Or, okay. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, I ended up at Del Posto kind of accidentally. So, no, yeah, it was accidentally. That, yeah. What did, what did that look like? <laughs> I, I had left Danielle. I took some time off. Um, I was working on a business plan for a restaurant and um, Del Posto had 
gotten their four star review just a few months before. It was and Bruni, was it or uh, was it? Sifted? Sifted, okay. And it was very busy and that's a hell um, of a review. Yeah. Um, and my friend was a chef de cuisine, and I was doing some freelance catering to make ends meet. And he called me and asked me if I would come and work as like a mercenary sous chef. And <laughs> I like that. I was like, that's a terrible idea. I don't know anything about Italian food. I have never been in your four star fancy restaurant. I have no idea what's going on. Why would I say yes to that? He convinced me that it was a good idea. So I listened and, and it ended up being a good idea. Mark, Mark kind of teased <laughs> me for out. a very long time that I was the most, I was the longest standing temporary employee. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of got turned upside down there. I had never worked in an Italian kitchen. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just very different. So I had to learn so many things. That's learning a different language. Yep. So it was kind of awesome because yeah. I didn't know that language and I wanted to That's know a- what was going on and what this was and what that meant and how to do this. And, um, you know, so when I think about that and then think about, walking into the conversation with Mark about how he's going to leave mm-hmm. and how he would like for me to take over the restaurant. Talk about that. Like, what did you feel like in that moment? Did you know you were walking into that conversation? That's what was going to be discussed? Uh, kind of. I knew, you know, what was happening with him. And um, I didn't know that that would be where I would end up or if that's how he felt at the time, I wasn't sure. Um, you know, it wasn't just his decision either. So, um, but that was what him and Jeff Katz, the GM wanted. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so I felt very overwhelmed and, um, you know, it was quite joyful, I guess, you know, um, a little intimidating. Did you have any doubts? Um, no, I just kind of looked at it as this is a challenge and this is a good way for me to continue moving up and forward. And, you know, the team had been the team that I had developed. Um, so there, I was working with people that were supportive and, um, and had been working with me for quite some time. So, the transition was pretty, was relatively easy. Um, the thought of, of taking over a restaurant that had been run by this one person for as long as it had, who, you know, is a darling and wonderful and creative chef and great person was intimidating. Um, you know, and I, took it, I guess, how I take everything, which is just kind of cautiously. And, <laughs> you know, I was afraid to change things at first because I didn't want to alienate anyone. But at the same time, you know, Mark was leaving and I had to kind of start putting my own stamp on the food and the restaurant. Um, so that was a little bit of a process. That was probably the most intimidating part because all of a sudden, you know, I had been doing menu development with Mark for a very long time and... In a lot of ways, he let me develop in my own accord, um, you know, but now I was the one who was structuring that. Yeah. Um, so that was, it was a little intimidating. Um, but like I said, I just looked at it as a challenge and, uh, you know, I would just try. I remember like moving into a new job once and somebody saying, well, you have to fire somebody when you get there to like basically pee all over the whole thing. I'm like that's not my style. Like, that's not what I do. Like it was sort of the shock and awe kind of thing. Like like, that didn't happen. (laughs) No. So I I did not. (laughs) Um, But then let's talk about this next shift. So you had been in that position and then you became a partner there uh, recently. Let's talk about what that looked like. Um, You know, it was a very funny year and a half or so, um, with all the attention from, uh, Mario, um, you know, and, and there were a lot of points that I was like, maybe if this doesn't move forward, I don't know how I'm supposed to move forward. Yeah. Um, so the divesting and then the partnership was essentially a big forward moving step for me. If that, 
maybe hadn't happened, I don't know that I'd still be interested in staying. Yeah, I, I sort of you know, wondered about uh, about that kind of thing. So I, the day that it was announced that that all was happening and you were going to be partner, I was joyful. I was, I, you know, it was a relief. Yeah. Um, because it felt like something positive had to ha- happen, at least for me and my staff and the group of people that we've have spent so much time together and we're all being kind of, you know, in under that umbrella of we don't understand why this is where we are. Does it feel different having a stake in it in that particular way? What's that shift been like for you? Um, and I mean, different, I mean, you've always had a stake, but this is a different animal. I've, you know, I've, I've always had the attitude if you treat it like yourself, like it's yours one day it will be. And that's like <laughs> a very famous Thomas Keller quote, but I really believe that. And, you know, I just, I always treated Del Posto like it was my home. And I mm-hmm. have always thought of the staff as my second family. Yeah. Um, I say it to them all the time. It's so annoying. And when I hear myself <laughs> say this, but it's true when you, when you look at it, you spend more time with the people that you work with, especially mm-hmm. in a restaurant situation, than you do anyone else in your life with your family, your husband, your best friend, whoever. Um, so treating and nurturing those relationships like so is important. And so, you know, getting to a point where a partnership is, um, you know, and I, I have a stake in something, it just kind of helps solidify that, that attitude. Um, you know, I enjoy all the people that I work with and I love to nurture those relationships and and make that very real for myself because it just is. So at the end of the day, the partnership is just like an extra added bonus. What would you say to that Melissa who walked into that kitchen that first day, the mercenary sous chef? What would you tell her? Uh, oh my goodness, I don't even know. So, uh, like, okay, let's frame it this way. Imagine a, uh, a cook comes in and you just recognize this thing about them, that they're in the same mindset that you were. Like, what, how, would you, how would you manage that person? What would you tell them? Um, I mean, honestly, I would probably tell them the same thing that I, that I tell everyone else, that if you want to be here, that's awesome. Then we want you to be here. But if you don't want to be here, I don't want to pretend that this is a place you want to be. And when I walked in the door at Del Posto, I didn't know if I wanted to be there. And I probably spent like a year or two not sure if that was a place for me because I had, I really liked Mark. I really liked the environment, but like learning Italian food was like learning another language. Was this something I was going to grasp? I didn't know, you know, ended up working. Um, and, it's been really great because now I feel like I've just done nothing but expand what my repertoire is and what I'm comfortable with and what my skill set is. So that's amazing. You know, so I would say the same thing to myself, either, you know, you're, you want to be here or you don't. And now it's your place. (laughs) Small (laughs) thing. But still, I think, I think that's wonderful. And we've, we've gotten to the, the Oprah part of the interview. (laughs) It was like Oprah and the secret, um, where, uh, I, I really do believe that if there's something that you really want and if you can say it out into the universe and other people know that they can help you with this, this thing, they can. So I believe there's value in vocalizing things. What is the thing, the selfish thing that you want for yourself? Um, I think I just want to continue figuring out a way for myself to grow. I've always liked, like I said, I I like making small goals and at some point they kind of turn into large goals. So Mm -hmm. I like having, I like to continue having little lists of goals that kind of feel like I'm moving forward and feel like I'm growing. Mm -hmm. The selfish me just wants to continue having both professional and personal growth. Mm -hmm. Is there an end game? No, I mean, it's this is kind of my life, I guess. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I choose, you know, I, I choose it. Um, maybe the end game <laughs> is paying a little more attention to um, like taking real time off and, yeah. and, um, and making that a more regular thing. Um, you know, at some point I, I, 
yeah, I, I don't know what else I would do. It's all I've ever done. Yeah. You know, and, and I like it. It keeps me really active and on top of things. And I don't know what the end game that <laughs> is. That's okay. Oh, question I forgot to ask you. Um, crying in the walk-in. Can you talk to me about that? <laughs> I I have I have never cried in the walk-in. I have definitely gone into the walk-in, taken my shoes off, and take five deep breaths. That's kind of my move. Um, I always liked, you know, there's like windows on the walk-in. I always liked going in the middle of service, taking my shoes off because it's very cooling. Yeah. <laughs> and like just being quiet, taking five deep breaths, and looking out the window and seeing all the crazy chaos that's happening. And then putting my shoes back on and going back out into the world and feeling much better about uh, where I'm at. I love it. Will Gadara also mentioned like taking the shoes off. In yeah, the... shoes off is a big thing. <laughs> like, may, it changes your world, especially if it's hot and you're having a really <laughs> rough day. Like, it really is the most rejuvenating thing. <laughs> that and a few deep breaths, and you're like, okay, oh, I love I'm good. That. Do you use any apps for breathing? No, I don't. I, I just I. I just count. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> I, I, actually, I look at an animation on my phone and I breathe along with it. Or on, I, I'm usually wearing a watch. I actually have a rest from my watch right now. Ooh, and I, yeah, there's a little breathe app that I look at and I like that one a lot. I should try that. Yeah. So I have a speed round of questions. What is your comfort food? Uh, pizza. Pizza. Any any particular pizza? Um, I love Raza in Jersey City. Mm-hmm. I've been I I've lived in Jersey City for like ten years and um, it's one of my favorite one of the places I return the most. Um, what's your What's your particular pie? I just like a margarita. Pretty, mm, I love that. Easy. I hope you get one soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is the last meal that you had that made you emotional? Um, I was in Mexico City in. A few months ago, I think in April, and my husband and I had a late lunch at Pujol. That was amazing. Ah, that is on my goal list. And to be quite honest, like all the street food tacos that we had mm. were just as amazing. It was just overall such an awesome food week, and the lunch that we had at Pujol was really fantastic. But did it make you just feel things. it just made me feel like very relaxed and lighthearted and just happy um you know it was really nice it's a beautiful restaurant it feels like magically airy and casual but not at the same time and the food is thoughtful and delicious and new and um, it was, yeah, just a really lovely way to spend an afternoon. And I've heard that lunch is the move there. <laughs> is it? Is it? That's what, that's, that's what, what we I did hear. because that's what we could do. And, uh, or no. that was the reservation we could get. I was like, great. No, I've heard that that is, that <laughs> that's is it. The, so, the yeah, it was, it was really very beautiful. And, and like I said, just a really nice way to spend an afternoon. I'm so glad you had that. That's yeah. so good. What is the last meal that somebody cooked for you in their home? <laughs> uh, I don't know. No one ever wants to cook See, for me. This is, this is why I asked this question because nobody cooks for chefs. It was and probably like my mom. What and like a, a holiday meal or no? It was probably for maybe one of my sister's birthdays, and she probably made pot roast. <laughs> Dear John Winterman, uh, <laughs> Melissa needs to come over for please cook for the woman, and uh, he can cook. I love when people cook for me, but, and it doesn't happen <laughs> No, I want to cook for you. <laughs> what living musician would you want to cook for, and what would you cook for them? Oh, man. <laughs> oh, there's so many, I and know. I listen to so many different kinds of music. Well, what is the most played thing currently in your lineup? Uh, it's like the Wu-Tang Clan versus Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me really, oh my God, imagine Neil Young and which member of the Wu in particular is your person? Uh, probably the RZA. Okay. Say so the RZA and <laughs> Neil <laughs> Young walk into Del Posto. <laughs> what are you going to do? That would be amazing. Oh, I would just probably make them pasta. I assume that that's what they'd want. <laughs> it makes me really happy. You know, I believe our mutual friend, uh, Kelly Fields, I believe, has uh, cooked for the RZA. Oh, really? I oh, think, I'm so jealous. I think so. <laughs> um, 
last question. What you have five uninterrupted minutes for self-care. Your phone is not buzzing. Um, door to the office is locked or whatever it is. And nobody's going to bug you for five minutes. What do you do to take care of yourself? Um, I go outside and I walk around the block. And that's a nice block. I was just over there. That's a nice block. Yeah. It's like the best way to, I need a minute to myself. Um, even sometimes when it's really cold out <laughs> or <laughs> raining. I wish for you a pizza <laughs> and a really good walk at some point in the near future. Thank you. And so thank you so much to our guest today, Melissa Rodriguez. What are, how can people find you on social? Um, at Del Posto um, or at Mel J. Rodriguez. Yes. And, um, and, and please go to see her at Del Posto and, and just like buckle in for happy luxury, <laughs> for joyful luxury. Like not like stick up your ass like luxury, <laughs> oh, but like really, really joyful stuff. Um, thank you to our producer, Jennifer Martinick. And thank you to Douglas Wagner for our delightful theme song. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. And those ratings and reviews, those stars, those comments, they help us be found and they help us, um, they help convince our bosses that we should keep doing this. If there is something that you would like for us to talk about or a guest you'd like to hear from, please let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Kitten with a Whip. Find out more about the show and catch up on all the episodes at foodandwine.com and Food and Wine's YouTube page. Thank you for listening. Take good care of yourself till the next time. Go take a walk around the block. <laughs> <laughs>